It's hard to think because you've got to think about every side, not just, okay, well, the main character is thinking this. How would real people react? And that's hard to come up with sometimes, but you really have to think it through. I feel like I learn something every day, just writing. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Carrie Horner, who pens contemporary romance and paranormal fiction under the pen name Carrie Alice. Her novels are The Secrets of the Cypress, Fangs in the Forest, and Restored. And as you may have guessed, several of her characters are vampires. Carrie, who left a nursing career behind when she was bitten by the writing bug, joins us today to talk about her work. So welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Hi, nice to be here. Well, we're totally happy to have you with us. And uh, one of the things that sort of right off the bat, I know I made a terrible pun uh, in the opening, but I really could not help myself. I know, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So you were a nurse uh, and you walked away from being a nurse to to be a writer. Yes. Like that sounds huge. Could, could, Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, I wanted a safe job, but I hate germs and I don't like blood. So... It was kind of a stupid thing to get into in the first place. Oh my gosh! So yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but then then vampires. Yeah. Well, I can <laughs> I can write about it. I just can't sure. see it in real life. What drew you to, for instance, vampires? How did you go about choosing your topic? Were you already working on something? Like, were you working on it while you were still a nurse? What was that process? Well, like? I was doing angels when I was a nurse, mm-hmm. and then I dropped that story altogether. And then I did the contemporary romance restored. Um, because I just wanted to try something safe to start, just a normal story with normal humans. Right. And then, but I really love vampires. So that's how that got in. I love Cassandra Clare, Stephanie Meyer. I just love these weird species. I don't know. Yeah. When you said, uh, you, st- you said you started with angels. I don't think there's anyone at the table who doesn't have an abandoned, or listening for that matter, who doesn't have an abandoned novel. So why don't you tell me about when you started that and what, like, did you lose the thread on it or? I don't think I had any idea what I was doing. Mm. So I started it and it's probably awful. It's probably in my email somewhere years back mm-hmm. and that's what happened i just dropped it all together when i started to write seriously now did you feel like you didn't have enough momentum or was the premise flawed or uh the premise was probably flawed mm-hmm. i don't know how i would work it back around to make sense but it just felt good to write at the time so i just went with it and so how old were you when you were when you did this were you gosh old um <laughs> 20s 30s Older than you should Older, have been. I'm not, not a teenager. Right. No. Right, right. Yeah. So I noticed that in, I was started to read uh, Restored, and I noticed that in Restored, the uh, Alexis is a nurse who faints of blood and has trouble with that. And I remembered from the bio, I was like, ah, so I wonder if this is a little bit of drawing on, you know, for the first novel, the first kind of push out there, um, you know, how much of yourself was in the main character who was a nurse who hated blood, who... You know, I can relate to it. I can the, even the medical setting. It's something I've been into, so I know how disgusting it can be, and I can really write about the details mm-hmm. that right. I remember and passed out myself <laughs> doing. 
Right. Yeah, that just seemed like such a kind of a, an interesting kind of juxtaposition of yeah. having a nurse who, like, at one point in this story, they're like, here's our new nurse practitioner. And we've already seen her, like, pass out, like, twice, you know, seeing blood. I'm like, man, that's got to be like a, you know, those kind of complexities, I think, are what make certain characters interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah, it just happened to work. I don't know how these things happen. It's like you go back and look at your own writing or reread your stuff, and it's like, who wrote this? I don't remember doing this, but wow. <laughs> that's 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 actually how I can tell if something I wrote is worth worth sending along. If I keep it if I keep it for a couple of weeks and I mm-hmm. read it again, and I'm like, yeah, that's not bad. Then it's probably okay. Yeah. And otherwise, like by line three, I'm like, well, that is garbage. We need to delete that this very second. Yes, yeah. it's <laughs> embarrassing. You know, don't want anyone to see this. Yeah. So when, how did you kind of like, so with your first book, you're going to kind of, you'd say you chose kind of a safe route. Like what kind of provided you the inspiration? I know the setting was in Maine, which is very different than where we are here in Maryland. So did you, was there like a trip to to Maine that inspired you for this? Or how did you kind of get inspired to, to do the first novel restored? I've never been to Maine. I did a lot of research. Right. Um, I, there was even lighthouse cameras that were live action online. Mm. Sure. That I looked up and I, I just, even people's YouTube videos, sure. I would see what the area looked like because I'd never been. I thought it would be fun to do research for the first one just to kind of get a handle on that aspect of things. I've, I've, I've actually done that myself for nonfiction. It's something that no one could do even even a decade ago, but... I, I'll use Google Maps and I can, like, I, I interviewed a guy who was in California, San Diego, let's say. And, you know, and he said where he, he said where he worked, it was this brewery. And so I looked up the brewery online and I looked up the neighborhood online and you can virtually walk through the neighborhood on Google Maps. And so you can add those details that are, that should be part of, the uh, na- native experience, but it's not. It's something that you you can look up online as easily as you can look up who was the mayor in 1943. Yes. Yeah, and there was a, a moment where, in a story that I'm working on, where I physically went to the place and tried to have the experience and was trying mm-hmm. to do the sights and the smells and the sounds and all that kind of stuff. And then when I got home, I was like, well, I didn't pay attention to what the houses look like on this road. I didn't, does the road curve? I wrote that the road curves, does that even happen? So I literally went to Google Maps and just click, 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 yeah. walked down the road that I had just been on and was like, oh, I mean, it kind of curves, but not the curve that I had in my mind. So, I mean, it is kind of cool to like go back and pull, to be able to go back and be like, oh no, I remembered that wrong. Right. You know? So, I mean, that is kind of a, kind of a, a neat aspect to, to research. Yeah. And when you were working on getting the first one published, because you what did you go from? Did you publish anything before this? Any short stories or anything, or is this just nope. zero to sixty? First huh? time out of the game, zero to sixty. Just do it. And and what was that like? How did you? How did you? How did you know you were done? Like how did you? Are you an outliner or? No, I think everyone should be, but I'm, I'm not. not I've tried, and for the last book I wrote, which is not published. I told I, w- I did the outline. I even did the snowflake method um, outlining system. It's a whole system. What do you, What is a snowflake I, method? No, I've never it's heard of the snowflake by, system. I'm going to get his name wrong. Randy Ignors. Anyway, Randy something another. Sure. And Randy. it's called the snowflake method. And so it's a program on the computer, and it tells you characters. It keeps track of different things. 
And I tried it, and then my editor said I rushed through everything. So it's like, was this even helpful to me? I don't <laughs> sure. know. I thought I had it down pat. No. <laughs> well, I guess that would be the thing. Like, if you make it too formulaic, then it's going to come yes. out. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like I know where it's going to end. I just don't know how we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's like two – there's the – I think they call them the planners and the pantsers. Right. So there's people who – when they approach a story, they outline it. That's really more my my technique. Um, is like I want an outline. I always kind of think of my stories as like a skeleton, and my mm-hmm. outline is the you know the bones of it, and then it's my job to put you know the meat on it and the flesh on it and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the pantsers who just kind of go, "I'm in a story, and I'll figure it out as I go." Right. So, do you sort of feel like you're more just kind of do you allow the narrative to kind of come to you spontaneously or? I think it's somewhere in the middle sure. because I have that intention of having an idea of what I'm going to do, but then it's like, well, I need something to fill the space and that doesn't come to me when I'm writing. I'm driving and it's like, oh my gosh, that's how this is going to come together. Mm-hmm. That's how it happens for me. Yeah. No, that's, that's, I think that's, I think that's pretty common. Again, with, with nonfiction, it happens to me all the time. I'll, I get from space to space and then you look back at it and you're okay. That is thin. You can thicken that up. You can use some detail there, and and not and it's not padding it. It's like oh, this is a chance for you to do something very rich, if you if you want to take it. And yes, that's something that I I couldn't imagine outlining at all. So right. Well, you call me a nerd. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Are you offended? No, <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> But no, um, I was just going to say that, uh, so Restored is contemporary romance. It was a nice, safe foray, and I, and it kind of, I guess, maybe made you feel comfortable with the process of writing a novel, of going through all the steps to completion, going with your editor, kind of going through all those pieces, and then obviously to a, a finished, published product. So then for the next two books... I mean, you sort of switch gears on us and we go to yep. the paranormal vampire side. So did having the first book out, published, complete, edited, a whole package ready to roll, did that give you the confidence to say, okay, now I want to try going to something different and I really love vampires and I'm going to try this this genre over here? That's pretty much it. And for the second and third book I wrote, I did in first person, whereas the first one was in third. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much more natural for me, too. I can really get into the characters. And with the third, I just felt so detached. Right. So I felt like I had more confidence the second time and third time around. My difficulty writing from the first person is you're always worried, or I am always worried, one often is worried, that you're giving away things that you shouldn't know as a first person. And what did you do to avoid that? Were you How, how, how conscious of that were you? I had two main characters, um, the male character and the female character. The male, his, his part wasn't as big. But you'd also see his point of view. Oh, I see. So that's how I took care of that. Otherwise, I don't know. My story probably would have been 20 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that is one of the, the troubles with, with first person is I think when you are creating fiction, you know what all your characters are thinking. You know what their motivations are. You know how this kind of thing is coming together. But you're kind of locked into that first person character that you're moving through. So I think that is something. It's a real challenge to to have the other characters show how they're feeling and you get your first person giving the impression 
getting the right impression from two things that are completely just in your head. Like these, yes. these are made up things. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to think because you've got to think about every side, not just, okay, well, the main character is thinking this. How would real people react? Mm-hmm. And that's hard to come up with sometimes, but you really have to think it through. I feel like I learn something every day. Yeah. Just writing. Um, when you decided to get it published, how did you find, were you assigned an editor or did you find your own editor? I, first I took a self-publishing course mm-hmm. and they had a list of editors. And when I contacted this one in particular, she's like, oh really? I'm on a list. <laughs> and so she took, <laughs> took I know she really didn't see me coming. Um, but she took me on and I've used her for every book and she's out of California. So I've never met her, but I feel like I know her. And then do you work, um, over email or do you talk on the phone? Both. Hmm. Usually she'll, she would call me before, um, the book was ready. So she'd go through it the first time and then I would make any changes and then send it back to her. She would go through it again and then I would get it back and, but we would talk throughout mm-hmm. the process. And what was it like getting feedback from a stranger? Is this the first, was this kind of the first experience mm-hmm. you had with, you know, yes. and, and how well did you take criticism? Were there anything you had, a, you fought against? I didn't really fight because most of the criticism was grammar and it's, you know, that's not my specialty. No, it's I, not the hill you're going to die on. No, <laughs> no, I was fine with that. And her suggestions, it's kind of like, you need to add more here. Okay, well, I guess I do. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it from where I was reading it, but it makes sense. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I think is really valuable about the editing process and having a good editor that you can build a rapport with and that you can trust their criticisms without taking it personally. Because I think there is yes, there's kind of a moment where you could take some of it personally. Oh, yeah. Did you ever have any moments where you are like had to remind yourself, this isn't personal, this is just, you know, or... Maybe with the last book, because she said, I think it would really do a lot better. You can keep it as it is. It's fine. It's publishable. Or if you really want to kick it up a notch, this is, you should rewrite. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's painful and no one wants to hear that, especially after you've written a few books, you think, oh, I know something. Right. No, not so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the other difficulty is. Um, remembering that their name is kind of on it too. And we've, yes. we've spoken about this with, with other editors, like they want it to be as good as they can get it to be because their name's on it as the editor, or, or at least it's something that's in their portfolio as the editor. And they want to be able to say, no, this is the kind of, this is the kind of work that I'm, that I'm capable of. And yes. so that's why it's important for them to make your book look as good as it does. Of course. It makes sense. We're all in it together. Mm. Um, so in the, I'm in the vampire books, they happen locally. Yes. Huh. Pokemon forest. And, um, can you, can you, do you spend a lot of time in the Pokemon forest? What, what drew you to the Pokemon forest? Well, um, teenager, I lived in Pokemon hmm. and you hear the stories and I even had a, I'd say haunted experience. Mm-hmm. We were, me and a few friends were driving through the forest at night, and I don't remember the name of the bridge, but apparently if you took your keys out of the ignition, put it on the dashboard, and honked three times, you were supposed to see someone on the bridge. We didn't see anyone, but as soon as he started the car back up, the bottom of the car fell apart. Wow. And it was a new car. 
Maybe so we, you didn't see anything walking because they were under the car and yeah, screwing things. Yeah, I was terrified screaming, <laughs> saying not to do this because I don't want to see anything. Right. But And then you're stuck there, so you had to walk out of the forest? Well, luckily we made it to a field, which was right past the bridge. Mm-hmm. So there was no ghost there. <laughs> <laughs> that you could tell. That I, that I saw. Right. Right. No, I mean, being a local, I mean, I was born, uh, born and raised outside of Salisbury. And so the Pokemon Forest does have... And I noticed that when I when I was looking over the other two books that they were set in the Pokemon Forest, and I was pretty excited about that because you know being a Delmarva native myself, like I remember being in high school and we would all like all the kids we would you know not not much to do when you're from Salisbury and you know it's a Friday night and so we would all kind of pile in each other's cars and we would play like the Jason or the Friday the 13th movie soundtracks and like tweak ourselves out and we'd ride through the Pocomoke forest because there is this really weird quality about that place. And you hear when you're growing up here, you know, you hear all these legends and folklore and everyone's had like a weird experience and everyone has a cousin who saw this and you know, those kinds of things. So I feel like the Pocomoke forest is sort of ripe for the picking when it comes to paranormal paranormal literature yeah i went on a haunted tour of the pokemoke forest in the downtown area and they said when you mix a marsh a river and a swamp no a forest a swamp and maybe it is the marsh i'm not sure but anyway them three things are supposed to be like mystical or Mm. haunt inducing i don't know but (laughs) Very, very strange quality inducing yes. for sure yeah because the pokemon river is a very is a very strange river yes i mean I've, i mean i sort of grew up on it i mean it's just a very strange place i mean i myself i know tony's not a huge paranormal person but i mean i remember like on those times you know when we were in going through the forest and having like weird experiences happen to us and being a writer i've always thought wouldn't it be cool to set a story near there or around there to kind of draw on some of that mystical, weird, eerie kind of quality. So it sounds like you found that same quality and you were like, yep, I'm going to, I'm going to roll with this. And and you went with vampires. Exactly. Yeah. That would explain some weirdness. (laughs) Sure. Sure. (laughs) Now, did you spend much time in the forest as like, as research? Like, did you, did you set any things in places that you remembered clearly? Not really. I mean, I did go through the forest. I went um, canoeing also on the river, mm-hmm. which is in around the forest. So I tried to observe the things that I saw. Mm-hmm. But as far as, you know, real life, this is where I went. Right. No, I just based it on any observations I had. And how, what, how much of the forest is in, like, is the forest a character in the in the? In some story? ways it is. It's supposed to, it kind of explains why it's so mystical mm-hmm. or why you don't want to be in it. It has an eerie feeling to it. Yeah. And in when you're doing a supernatural thing, it's, it's great to have that kind of setting where, um, what's, what's intriguing about things that are supernatural generally is they're, they're not obviously supernatural. Like, no, it's just a tree. And they're like, no, there's an evil face in that tree, right? There's uh-huh. a, there's this, there's a creepiness that's, that we can bring to it if we want to, but it's not apparent unless we, unless we kind of try and superimpose that. And yes. so I guess that that must have helped it be yes. a good setting for you. Yeah. 
I had her go on a hike, the main character, mm-hmm. and freak herself out just in the forest. And that was without any vampires at that point. That is so funny. I don't know if this is reverse sexism, but I assumed that the vampire was a woman. Ah. Nope. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that you did approach with, with all of your novels is that you used a pen name. Which yes. I think is kind of a cool thing. We've had a couple authors um, on this show before who have um, written under pen names or kind of changed their names a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your choice to do that? I just wanted to keep some distance. I don't know if I will ever be famous. Maybe I will. Who knows? Sure. But if I am, they're not going to be able to find me mm. on Google. <laughs> Until this podcast comes Until out. This po- <laughs> yeah. They'll have to do some research because yeah. I'm not there yet. But. And is is Alice your middle name? How did you how did you select Alice for? Well, no, it's not my middle name. My middle name was um, Allison before I was married. But my oldest daughter has got Allison as her middle name, mm-hmm. and I've got two daughters. So if I did Carrie Allison, they would be like, "Oh, I'm jealous." So right. it had to be something neutral. I see. So it's 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 a truncated middle name. Yes. Yep. All right. And to to avoid any uh, problems with the with the kids, yes, because you don't want to play favorites, right? No. Obviously. <laughs> and so you said you're working on your third book. You're finishing a fourth book, I guess. You're finishing it up. Do you know where you are with that? Oh, I've gone a whole nother direction. What? Oh you? goodness. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, I did finish a third book or to the series, so it would have been a fourth book. Right. But instead, I've decided that I wanted to get an agent. And uh-huh. so I got this author coach who is terrific, and he suggested that I either go with my first book, which I didn't think was out there enough, or go with Fangs in the Forest, which is the first of the series. But I needed to get it up to genre, um, word length. Okay. So I've written, I think it's 115 pages, additional equivalent to go into the story. So I'm proofreading that now. Oh, that's interesting. So especially since we were just talking about finding places where it was thin and thickening it up. I was, yes. I was wondering why your eyes lit up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now we know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm really familiar with that. I went to from 55,000 words to 80,000 words. And the reason that that's a, a number is that's where they can make it into a novel. Is yes. That- that apparently that's where the paranormal genre is. Mm-hmm. At first he was saying 75,000. He was like, no, you better make it 80 because it's more marketable. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, and how did you find the agent? Did you just query them? Or? Well, he was, this guy that I'm working with is a former agent. So he's going to tell me what to do as far as, um, first of all, he's read my work before he even took me on. Mm. Um, and then he says... There's so many agents, but you only have eight seconds for them to read your, what is it? Your, not synopsis, query. your query, your query yeah. letter. And if that you don't have them in eight seconds, they're on to the next one because they get 1,500 letters a month. So. 1,300 of them are from me. Well, you know, I'd like all of us. <laughs> I'd given up on that route altogether thinking, why do I need right. an agent or a publisher? But, you know, really, if you want to get your stuff out there, that's seems to be the way to do it so that's what i'm attempting at this point mm. well it's it's can it can still be a little complicated i'm i'm from i i was traditionally published and 
I'm never afraid to talk about this uh, on a small press. And there's still what they expect of the authors as far as the marketing and promotion of a book um, is still is still pretty significant. I mean, they can scatter shoot some stuff, but I don't know. You know, especially now, it's almost like winning the lottery, being able to get, you know, just to get marketing support, as I've been told from from larger publishers. So, the upside to to independent and to small publishing is that. Well, I'm sorry, I was just telling this to Stephanie the other day. Uh, for me, the appeal of independent publishing now, having published two books um traditionally is that at least i might see some of the some of those sales of the book if i i mean if i'm personally selling each book yeah <laughs> and i personally wrote the book i probably should yeah. have just spent the money to print it and then and then have and then have gotten the the bigger rewards who knows it's a crapshoot uh, but yeah. but along those lines, what did you do to promote these books? Did you do signings and book clubs and things like I've that? I've done some signings. I'm really horrible at marketing, it turns out. Mm. I just don't even know what to do. There's no major resources because no, like, bookstores don't want a self-published book. Well, I, I think it depends which ones. Yeah. yeah Stephanie can so. speak to this a little bit better. I yeah, think. I just had, um, in fact, there was, um, he was on the podcast not too long ago. There's one of uh, my clients from Saltwater Media, a guy named Randy George. Actually, not this not too far from you, a Somerset County guy. Oh. And he did a book called Memoir of a Skipjack. And it was a really well done book, self-published uh, project that he did. Um, but he had a really great story. He found this skipjack and he rescued it and saved it and restored it. And then also in this book, he talks about that restoration process as well as the history of the boat, who built it, the guy was murdered. Oh, um, then he does kind of like a whole listing of other work boats that were similar. And he did this really comprehensive work. And I actually just got a call earlier this week from, you know, bookstores that are, you know, like clamoring to get it. So it's done pretty well for him. So I think that, you know, when people, you know, as a, I mean, I own a self-publishing company. Um, so, <laughs> right. you know, That's when a people, disclaimer, yeah. disclaimer, uh, spoilers, um, <laughs> you know, I think when people come to me, you know, my advice on self-publishing is always like, look, it's like anything else. There are pros and cons, just like for you, there were pros and cons to be traditionally published and for, you know, for you, there were pros and cons to being self-published. And I think it's just a matter of trying to, you know, figure out which pros and cons work best for each project. And I feel like my job as a self-publisher, and I don't want to make this about me, so I'll just sort of wrap this point up. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like just when, you know, when people look at your books, they don't, I think self-publishing has always, traditionally had a really bad rap, but I think there are editors there are coaches oh, there yeah. are authors who are really trying to take a serious stab at it graphic designers i mean these covers oh, are beautiful yeah, yeah your covers are gorgeous yep and so it i think i certainly didn't do that <laughs> <laughs> so i think for self-published authors and, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit that just because we're doing it ourselves doesn't mean that it looks like it came from staples or Kinko's, no right? that's the problem exactly because that's what i think a lot the expectation is because in history that's what's happened but the rest of us here and now that's not what we're putting out no we have things that are edited professionally formatted professionally cover designed we have it all exactly yeah and i think that that's sort of been you know when i'm sitting on my side of the desk yeah. working with clients you know i know that not 
everything's going to be a bestseller and people are probably not going to, you know, break into these, you know, the stratosphere with things, but the work they can do can live in a professional quality way. Then when people look at it, you know, when I looked at your covers, I was like, these are really cool looking covers and they really kind of draw you to it. And you've had your stuff edited and you're working with, you know, a coach to go work with an agent. So we're taking this seriously. Yes. You know, that's it. And no, I think some people it's, awesome self-publishing is i've been reading um susan k quinn's books have you read her oh my gosh she's incredible she was um a maybe rocket scientist or engineer or something out there and then she has huge success with self-publishing has written books on how to do it and she's just so beyond my understanding of how to do the promotions she does I wish I could get a grasp on it, but for her, my goodness, it's yeah because been a lottery. I think, yeah, the, and the other thing for self-published people, and the one thing I have to tell them is that you know a lot of the work is is on them. But you also found that even being traditionally published, yeah. the work was yeah. on you they, still. They sent out one mass email that said, "Hey, here's a book if you want to buy it," and that was pretty much the pretty much the end of the the end of the story. I think I bought more books to sell at signings and at libraries and things like that. Um, not more books, but you know, it's, it's always, I would, we were joking the other night because my royalty check is due and it's going to be on the order of like $400 or something yeah. like that. And it's just, it's always like, so there's the terror, like one day it's going to be $150 and that's going to be, that's going to be a hard day to, to have, but there's just this, I'm not doing anything to promote the book and neither are they like I've done all the promotion I can and it's easy to get discouraged where you're like, you know what? I don't want to keep knocking on doors. I just wanted to write the book. I didn't want yes. to. I didn't want to be a book salesperson. I didn't want to be in the marketing the business. I, I just, I, I have cool stories that I like to share. And finding an finding an audience takes more work. I've discovered that I'm that I'm willing to expend. Gosh, me too. There's just not enough hours in the day <laughs> to find these people. And even your family and friends, please review my book. And yeah. then that's still like. There's no reviews. <laughs> it's it's a tough it's a tough gig, you know. It but is. I think that you know plotting away and continuing to push because the other side is if you don't push and you don't try, then you're going to be in no different place. But if you do try and you do push and you do try to find different avenues that work for you, then you know that's the only way that you're going to sort of kind of knock through. And I always you know tell my you know tell clients and try to take the advice myself is that. You know, it is a J-O-B. Right. You know, it's not yeah. something that, you know, either, I mean, even if you were, you know, marginally famous, they still have to do, you still have to do the work, yeah. whether it's, you know, writing or, or you know, marketing. It's, it's all, it's all part of that mix. Right. So for, for you now, um, so what's, so you're going to be working with the, this uh, agent coach? Yes. And so are there any thoughts about how you might pitch it moving forward or what you might do kind well, of in the months to come? Well, I'm still reading my own work and that's painful as you probably know. <laughs> yeah, it always it's is. just the editing because you have to read word by word and, Oh, wait a minute. Is that in the right tense? Oh my goodness. What does this even mean? So you gotta, gotta go back through all that. I'm hoping to start pitching to agents after the new year. Okay. Because he said that between Thanksgiving and new year's is their summer break. So really? you've got to wait. Oh my gosh. Like I didn't even, I, I guess it wouldn't even occur to me since I wasn't, since I'm not in that, uh, well, I'm not an agent obviously, but 
for me on this side of the table, like right now from uh, Thanksgiving to New Year's, we are huffing and puffing and just trying to get everything done right here. So that's interesting that they would have that. Yeah. I mean, they're there. They just, he just said that you won't get the response you want. (laughs) Gotcha. So I think I'm willing to try new things. Well, I think you have to be, I think you have to investigate it and push and try because you know, you you never know what's going to be on the other side. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause I've, I tried to do the, um, pitching myself initially before I did any self-publishing and darn if that just doesn't break your heart. (laughs) It's awful. Yeah, it's 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 a really tough gig. I remember um, after winning the Sophie Kerr Prize and uh, trying to pitch to se- different agents, and I remember I, I will never forget this. And I and I know I've said it on the podcast before, but the one agent said to me, "If you're ever not writing what you're writing, give me a call." And I remember thinking uh, like that was such an awful compliment. You know, like yes. I like I like your writing, but but I but I don't like what you're writing about. Your subject, yeah, it's, yeah, it was. Really, so it's just, it's tough. You know, you just have to develop a thick skin, I think, is what, what Tony and I have been talking about that before. Like, when you approach it, you just have to try to toughen up and get in the game. But do you know one of the easiest things to write? A limerick. Absolutely, because especially if you like rhyme. If they people want limericks, how can they get them? Right, so if you like the show and if you like what we're doing over here, and if you would like a limerick by Tony or a haiku well, actually, it would be a limerick by Tony and a haiku by me. All you have to do is visit our website, which is www.sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com. Click on the Contact Us button. Give us your name, uh, mailing address. Pick a word. Tony will put that word into a limerick. I will put it into a haiku. We'll write it on a fancy schmancy postcard, slap a stamp on it, and have a guy bring it to your house. Just like it's 1856. And it's coming through Pony Express in the Pokemon Forest. <laughs> All right, Stephanie. Well, now is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with us about your work. Well, thank you so much for having me. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.